So if you had to pick one thing to describe your spiritual growth over the past year, what would it be? Would it be a gazelle? Uh, would it be a rock? Uh, would it be a turtle? Would it be a black hole, perhaps? Well, what would describe your spiritual growth in this past year? Um, it might surprise you, actually, in a recent Gallup survey that in the top 10 needs of North Americans, number seven is that they sense their faith growing, that they sense their faith moving and developing. So have you grown this year? I mean, do you sense this increase, this uptick in joy in God and affections towards Christ? I mean, are you content with it or are you troubled by it? Now, obviously, in any walk of faith, there's going to be a measure of stumbling and some backsliding and some moving around. But on the whole, there should be this progressive move in greater and greater and greater faith. I mean, it's like a child that's born, moves to childhood and then adulthood. So the believer is, is given new life, new birth, and then they move towards spiritual maturity. So, so where are you in this? And where do you get the power that will move you forward? In other words, how does that happen? What's the dynamic by which we are transformed from glory to glory to glory? I mean, what do you need? Do you need a, a new Bible or a new technique? Do you need a new church? Do you need a new preacher? Do you need a new set of friends? What will change you? so that you'll sense, you'll enjoy this greater and greater spiritual power. Well, Charles Spurgeon, in his own, his own beautiful way, wrote these words. He said, uh, if you want to move a train, you don't need a new engine or even ten engines. You need a light of fire and get the steam up in the engine that you now have. You have what it takes for the believer. Um, I would submit to you that I think Paul's methodology of getting the steam up, if you will, is through prayer, that, that, that he wants us to pray. And we're going to find Paul's prayer. That's what he's doing. He's praying for the church to grow spiritually. He's praying for the church to be excited, to move forward in the faith. And it's an inspired prayer, but it's a perfect model prayer. I trust that as we've gone through these Pauline prayers, you are seeing them and you can use them for your own prayer life. In this prayer, it's kind of like a three-step dance, though. I want you to see it as kind of an approach that you have, that, that, that Paul's going to teach us how to approach God. And I want you to, to note how Paul views himself and God. And, and once he approaches God, you approach to ask. I mean, there is something to ask for. And, and Paul's going to ask for spiritual strength, but in three different ways, and I'll explain that to you, three different ways that he's going to ask. And then... I want you to see that, that the finishing of the dance is really in the adoration. That, that Paul will be thanking God and adoring him before anything has come. So it's going to be done by faith. So if you will turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. This is Paul's second prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21. This prayer is recorded for us. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, 
that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so let's look at the approach to this thing. You'll see it in verses 14 and 15. So Paul's approaching God in prayer, and he approaches God in prayer saying, for this reason. Now, if your Bibles are open, um, you can look back in verse 1 and find he says the same thing for this reason. Now, why, why does he repeat himself here? Well, in all likelihood, Paul, finishing chapter 2, is going to move into recording his prayer. And then verses, verses uh, 2 through 13, he's almost rehashing chapter 2. It's like he's, his mind's gone back to chapter 2 to marvel over what God has done in us. I, I mean, it, Paul's going back to this idea uh, of, of the fact that we have been saved, the Christian has been saved by God's grace. I, I mean, it's remarkable. He says, you were children of wrath. You were, you were separated from Christ. You were apart from the promises of God. You were alienated. He, he says, you were without hope and you were without God. And yet God chose to reconcile you to himself and to each other through the cross of Christ. Mind-bending that that God would choose to move unilaterally towards us to reconcile us to God and to each other through the cross. That Jesus is the one who has taken two different men, you know, the Jew and the Gentiles, all of the world, humanity, and he's reconciled them into being one, one, one man. In other words, Christ, through his cross, has formed us into a new humanity, a new community of faith, by God's Spirit, being built up into the people of God. That's what he's done. This is a mystery that was not known. It was, it was hidden throughout the ages, and now God, in his own timing, has given Paul this mystery to declare to the nations. And that's what we are. You are a colony of heaven. You are filled by God's Spirit, to go out and to continue the work that Jesus Christ. You are his new people. You are his new humanity to carry on the work of Christ. And that, mind-bending as it is, moves him to say, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father. In other words, I, I just cannot get over it. The normal pattern or posture of prayer is to stand with your arms outstretched like this. But Paul kneels. He kneels to show his absolute humility, his submission, and I think, too, his absolute seriousness of, God, how can we walk out this new humanity in this world? How can we do it? It's over our heads. It's too much. I can't handle it. And so he's seeking for strength for us to be who we are. But it's not just a serious prayer. He's not just approaching God with a seriousness that I'm going to drop on my knees before God. But he also approaches with a joy because he says, I bow my knees to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I mean, God is a father. Paul is coming joyfully, confidently, that God will accept him as a son. That there's no distance, there's no fear. You know, this would have been mind-bending, by the way, to the pagan. I mean, these Ephesians were pagans prior to coming to faith in Christ. 
You never approached the gods confidently. You didn't know what the gods were going to do. They were capricious. They were fickle. They were uncertain. You brought your sacrifices. You hoped. You didn't know. You were, you were very, very tentative about approaching a pagan god because you did not know what mood he would be in. And as you know, if you read Greek mythology, you know that the gods were extremely fickle. They could turn on a dime. And yet Paul says, I bow my knees to my father. He's welcome because God as father is not a creating father here in this passage. It's more of a redeeming father. He has redeemed us. He has taken people who were orphans and alienated and separated, and he's made them children who are now loved and welcomed. But that's not all that Paul's confident over. He's also confident over the power of God and the goodness of God in prayer. Look what he says before he begins to pray. In verse 16, just the first half, he says, according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. So Paul is looking at God as being rich in glory. You, you know what glory means. Glory is, is that expression. It's a kind of a comprehensive expression of God's greatness. In other words, everything God has is beautiful, perfect, sufficient in every way. There isn't anything insufficient about God. So the riches of his glory, Paul's saying that I'm going to come and I'm going to pray for you according to the riches of his glory. Based upon that. Now, now, hear me clearly on this. He's not saying from the riches of God's glory. I'm not praying from the riches of God's glory like a bank account that keeps getting withdrawals that, that finally go down to nothing. That's not it. He's saying according to the riches of his glory. In other words, on the scale of his glory, in the style of his glory. There's no reduction in it that he's going to pray for us. I mean, this is a bold approach to God. There's a serious joy to it. There's a, there's a serious confidence that Paul has coming before God. Now, when you go to prayer, what is your approach? What, what is in your mind about the nature of God and the nature of yourself? Do you pray with this boldness? Do you come before God with a father, as a father? Do you understand your, your new humanity when you come before him? I think a lot of us struggle here. I think we trip on the approach. I think many of us know how to pray. We know how to petition God. We trip on the approach to God. I think we forget these things. I mean, let me just give you two thoughts. One, I think we struggle in our approach to God is we do forget this identity we have. You are different. Too many of us still rest in our identity as to what we do or what we've performed or how we've done or our identity is in the physical or the temporal or the material things of life. We forget that we are a new humanity. We forget that that God has called us out of the world. We were without God, without hope. Now we're made one. I think we forget these things. We forget that our task is to carry on the work of Christ. We're surprised when the culture offends us or comes against us, as if we expect to be treated fairly. I mean, you're a new humanity. You're the people of God in a world that's opposed to God. And so should we be treated fairly? I mean, is that an expectation that we should have? I don't think so. I think many of us, actually, as Christians, we live as cultured beasts. I mean, we do. We live very concerned and, and kind of myopically driven on what I'm eating, what I'm doing, the fun I'm having, the life I'm living, the pleasure I'm experiencing. Oh, we think about retirement and everything, but most of our life is lived within the confines of birth and death. We're very temporally centered. And I think that we don't approach God with this seriousness because we think of ourselves as just educated animals. 
as opposed to you are a new humanity. It's profound. Think about it. You were once without hope. You were without God. You were children of wrath. And now he has adopted you. And in Ephesians 2.5, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Just, just let your mind just massage that one for a while. That's who you are. And so we come in with a, with a seriousness that we have to carry this task out. But also, I think many of us, we, we fail in the approach to God because we forget he's our father. And we look at our lives, we look at the sin, the nature, the constant besetting sin that we do. We struggle with anger, lust, bitterness, whatever, whatever is your sin that you struggle with the most or sins. And we say, I can't approach God in this way. I'm way too dirty. It's like coming to the table filthy. We'd never do that as a kid. You got cleaned up before you came to the table. We look at God the same way. You got to get cleaned up before you come to the table. Remember a guy called me up, this is years ago. No one here, no one that you know. Um, just so you don't start thinking, I wonder who he's talking about. Um, he called me up and he just said this. He said, I'm just calling, I'm one of your lost sheep. And uh, reminding him he was the Lord's sheep, not my sheep. <laughs> if he's my sheep, he's in trouble. Um, but but I, I'm one of the lost sheep. I, I haven't been to church. Uh, I just can't come to God. I've fallen back into this sin, and I've done this. And he started kind of detailing all the struggles he was having. And, and I, I realized and was able to share with him that the struggle he's had, because he was, he was a believer. I, I, I do believe that. But he had failed to understand and remember that God was his father and that we're all prodigal children and that we're all called to come to God even with our sin we all want, I'd rather be a servant in my father's house than a prince in the house of darkness. So encourage him to come. I think we forget that he's our father, that he's your father. He's adopted you, that he has sovereignly chosen you. That's what we fought, found back in chapter one of last week, that we can appeal to him. We can come to him. He's a father. Folks, you need to grasp this or prayer will always be a distant reality for you. Martin Luther once was asked to preach in Denmark in 1537, August 25. Here's what he writes about the fatherhood of God. Here's what he preached. He says, no man, no matter who he may be, can ponder the magnificence sufficiently or express it adequately in words. We poor mortals who are condemned and miserable sinners through our first birth from Adam are singled out for such great honor and nobility that the eternal and almighty God is our father and we are his children. This is a grand and overpowering thought. Whoever really reflects on it, the children of the world will not, but Christians will, although not all of them either, will be so startled and frightened by the thought that he will be prompted to ask, can this really be possible and true that God would make us his children? If we really believed with our heart firmly and unflinchingly that the eternal God, creator and ruler of the world, is our Father, with whom we have an everlasting abode as children and heirs, not of this transitory wicked world, but out of all of God's imperishable, heavenly, and inexpressible treasures, then we would indeed concern ourselves but little with all that the world prizes so highly, much less would we covet it or strive after it. It's the fatherhood of God. So in approaching God in prayer, we want to remember the seriousness of our new humanity and our adoption as children to God. Now, remember, 
friends, everybody can't approach God this way. Now, the scriptures are very clear. Just because you are human doesn't mean you can approach God as father, as new humanity, without being adopted. I mean, the non-Christian cannot come to God as a child, understanding his role as a new human. Now, thankfully, thankfully, God is gracious to us, and he invites the non-Christian, he invites the one who is not yet a child to his presence through humility and faith and repentance. Jesus, I, I love the ministry of Jesus when he says, all you who are heavy burdened and laden, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. Come to me. So the non-Christian can appeal to God for adoption and for forgiveness and for mercy and be welcomed by God as a child being made one in Christ. But that comes through faith and it comes through repentance and it doesn't come just because you are a human being. So that's, that's, a, that's how we approach God with, a, with a, a serious joy. Okay, but note we approach God though, not just to stand in his presence, although that would be unfathomable. We approach him to ask for things. We want to be bold and so is Paul. So let's look at what he asks. And I'm hoping that you're going to see here what can be the things that you ask for. So the first thing we see in 16, he says, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. So I'm going to look at those two petitions really as one. I'm going to look at them as the same. In other words, we're asking God for the spirit to strengthen our inner man, or I'm asking God for Christ to dwell in my heart. So inner man and heart are kind of seen as parallel. And, and, and the inner man or your heart, remember it's not that blood-pumping organ you have. It, it is the core of who you are. We spoke about it last week. It's the core of who you are. So it's where your imaginations begin to bake into desires, which then come out in actions. So we're not about just behavioral modification here in this church. We're not here about just saying you've got to do this, 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 and this. Uh, Paul is praying that your hearts are going to change. That which gives birth to desire which then breaks the surface in behavior. That's what he's going after here. And he's saying, God, would you give the spirit to these people so their inner man is strengthened? Or I would say that Christ is dwelling. Now remember, it's the role of the spirit to make you aware of Christ. That's very important. Nobody can say Christ is Lord except by the spirit. The spirit has to shine a light on Christ for us to see him in all of his glory. That's the role of the spirit. And so Paul's praying, spirit, Make Christ real to them that he would be dwelling in their hearts. Now you say, well, isn't he already dwelling in my heart? Well, he is in a way, but Paul is praying for an enlargement for you to experience the power of Christ. In other words, when he says that Christ is dwelling on our hearts, the word for dwell means to create a permanent abode, not a temporary stay. So Paul is praying that Christ would dwell in you permanently, fully, that you would experience his power as it influences your life. So the first thing Paul is praying for is that we would live in love like Christ. That Christ would dwell in our heart as his influence extends out of our lives. So that the fruit of our lives are going to be submission, humility, gratitude, holiness, purity. We're going to put down anger. We're going to put down bitterness. We're going to put down lust. 
So those things are going to come out of us because Christ is reigning over our hearts. But what you see here at the end of 17, or 16, excuse me, 17, is that we be rooted and grounded in love. This is what J.C. Ryle, the great British Anglican of the 19th century, said, love is the queen of Christian virtues. And, and love is what he's praying for, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that we would become rooted and grounded in love, in love for one another. In other words, rooted and grounded. He uses an agricultural metaphor and an architectural metaphor. The, the agricultural, that the roots go in the ground, so the, the roots go in the ground and the plant grows, our roots go in Christ and his love, which, which we love, his love then comes out of us. The architectural is, you know, the foundation defines the parameters of the building, so Christ's defines our love. In other words, the way he loved is the way we love. We don't get to love the way the world loves. We love the way Christ loved. And that's why we need to be rooted and grounded in him. And this love then gives birth to all kinds of gifts and, and um, all kinds of fruit. For example, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia back in the early part of the 20th century. And he wrote this about how love gives birth to these different fruits of the Spirit. He says, love is the key. Joy is just love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. And self-control is love holding the reins. So, so Paul is praying that the church would live and love like Jesus Christ. Now, is this the way you pray? Or can you pray with me this way? Can you pray with me that we would be able to love each other with the love that Christ has given us, that he'd be reigning on our hearts, and through his power and influence, we would love. The world can't love this way. I mean, we have to ask God for it. You will not love this way by bumping into it, by surprise. You have to pray for it. It's a divine gift to love this way. You cannot get it except by praying to the Father. You won't get it. I mean, if we could love this way, look at your own families. I mean, siblings, they have all the reasons to love each other. They share the same parents. They share the same blood. Love among siblings is often, that's sometimes that's the greatest amount of conflict or between spouses. I mean, here, you're sharing life together within a marital context. It's often very difficult to love one another. That's why it's not surprising when Jesus said, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. Why would he say that? Because it's so unusual to really love each other in a Christ-like love. So we've got to pray for that. We have to ask for that. that. That the Spirit would cause the presence of Christ to abide in my soul that I could love well. And then as Christ abides in your soul, you begin to look more and more and more like him. So, so it would be similar analogous to my house. You know, when I moved in my house 10 years ago, if if the person that I bought my house from were to come in my house now, they probably wouldn't recognize it. You know, I didn't see the vision. A friend said, oh, you could do a lot with the house, and, and eventually we did, but we've changed the house. We've put in a window. We've put in lights. We've torn down walls. We've changed bathrooms. It looks different. It looks like our house. Our pictures are on the walls. Our furniture is in the house. So, so if you came in the house, you'd say, well, Tom Mercer's been living here for a while because he, I have. When Christ is living in you, then you begin to look like him. You know, those things that are important to him are important to you. They just begin to move out of your life. That's what we're praying for. It's the first thing we pray for. The second thing we're praying for, look in 18, 
He says that you, would, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Again, I see this as one petition that he's praying for us to understand the immensity and the magnitude of this love that Jesus Christ has for us. I mean, it's a profound love. It can't be measured with exact tools of measurement like miles or pounds or ounces. It goes beyond breadth, beyond height, beyond depth, beyond width. It's unmeasurable. In fact, he says, to know the love of Christ that is beyond knowing. Is that, a, is that an oxymoron? I mean, is he just tormenting us? Is he frustrating us? I don't think so. I think he's saying that you and I are to pray to know more and more and more of what is inexhaustible. It will never, you'll never get to the bottom of this well. To know the unfathomable love of Christ that he has for you. Can, can you just think with me? When was the last time you've prayed for that? And yet how often do you struggle with not knowing whether God loves you? You don't, we struggle with this sense of, does he really love me? It's like the daisy, loves me, loves me not. You know, you look at the circumstances of life, and you say, well, he doesn't love me right now. And how often do we pray, God, help me to know how deeply loved we are in Christ. To know it. You know, it, it it's an evolving thing. It, it's like this upward spiral moving into, the, into a greater, greater, and greater knowledge of his love for us. In many ways, it's, um, it's like marriage or my marriage to Carol. So I meet her. I thought she was fun and lighthearted and laughed a lot and began to fall in love with her. And, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, it began to develop. You have children. You raise a family. You suffer together. You sacrifice for one another. You serve one another. You begin to experience life together. And what do you find? You find this deepening love for a person. I look back when I got married. I had no conception of what love was. I mean, I had a conception of it, but it was immature and it was self-centered and it was really quite an ugly little thing. And now, 28 years later, it's altogether different. It's altogether more profound, more deep, more painful. And I trust by God's grace that it will continue on that way. But, but it's an evolving thing. It's a developing thing meted out through life. And I think that's what Paul's praying for, is that we would be able to comprehend this love. You're not going to get it like a fire hose. It's going to come in time. This is what we're called to pray for, this, this deep, deep love of Christ. I mean, can you pray with me for that? I mean, most of you know it in a, as a rational proposition. You know it intellectually and conceptually. That's not what he's praying for here. I hope you see that. Paul's not praying that you understand in your head more about this love. He's praying that you will experience it, that you'll taste it, that you'll enjoy it, that it will move to something that you're bathing yourself in. I mean, it's altogether different. And I think we struggle with this love because we try to do it in isolation and, and as individuals where he says clearly, may they comprehend it with all the saints. It's in the context of the community of faith that we're going to see this love. And yet the community of faith is that which often draws us away from one another. And, and so we're almost being pushed back from that which we need most. 
It's in the community of faith that we see forgiveness offered and humility exercised and, and forgiveness granted. And, and we see in the community of faith sinners redeemed and people confessing and changing. That's, you know, when we hear your testimonies, you know, Carol made the comment the other day, you know, she, you may know a person and you think you know them, and then they, then they share their testimony with you and you see what they've been through and you see how God has redeemed them and restored them and delivered them and you're like, God, you're unbelievable. What, what love the Father has that we might be called children of God. But that's in the context of community. To know this kind of love. That's what we want to pray for. That, that you don't just know it cognitively, but that you would experience it. That you would find yourself caught up, as it were, in his love. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in New England in the, in the uh, 18th century. Now, if you see pictures of him, that guy was not a party animal. He, he was absolutely, he looked dour, he looked sour. I mean, he looked like if he smiled, his face would crack. And, uh, but he was a, a godly man, he was a brilliant man. And, and he was a man that when he preached, uh, there were heavy sermons, heavy sermons. And he'd read them, at least at the beginning of his ministry. He got away from reading towards the end. But if you saw this guy, you would not think of him as the epitome of bathing in the love of Christ. But here's what he wrote in his journal. He says, Once, as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly had been to walk for divine contemplation and prayers, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. I felt an ardency of the soul to be what I now, what I know not otherwise how to express. I was emptied, annihilated. To lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I mean, this is an experience where he is caught up in the glory of God, the face of Christ. So we're to pray for for one another. Our faith is not a sterile, cognitive, propositional faith alone. It involves the heart. It involves joy. It involves love. It involves that sense of I sense and enjoy and have experienced the grace of God through the love of Christ. That's what we're called to pray for. And I, and I, w- I would argue that if you have it, you might be surprised because it's been so long because we haven't prayed for it. So he prays that we would live in love like Christ. He prays that we would Enjoy this love of Christ. And then thirdly, and this is mind-bending for me, he prays that we know the fullness of God. Look in 19. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, I'm going to, I don't even know what to do with this. He's, I think, praying stunningly that you would be full of that which God is full of. So all the attributes, the peace, patience, joy, love, all those things that make up and fill God would fill you. That's what we're to pray for, that it would fill you up. This is incredible. We see this in Christ and we can understand it. 
You know, in Christ, it's, uh, in Colossians, Paul writes that God was pleased to fill Christ with all of his fullness. Now, we can understand that, right? Because Christ was infinite, so he could contain all the fullness of God. But we aren't. So what does he mean? Well, well, we can be full of God. We can't contain the fullness of God, but we can be full of God. So it's like many have used the analogy of taking a bucket to the ocean. You can fill up a bucket with the ocean. And the bucket is full of the ocean. But the bucket doesn't contain the fullness of the ocean. And so we can be full of God. That's what we're to pray for. God, would you fill us up? You know, when, when you're filled up with things, they dominate you. So if you're full of wine, the wine will be your leader. If you're full of anger, it will break out and, and kind of poison all your relationships. If you're full of bitterness, it's going to come out of you. When you're full of God, what happens is then you display God. You reveal God. But when you're filled up with God, all the selfishness and sinfulness and all the things that you and I struggle with are pushed out. We're praying, God, fill me with your fullness. Empty, you know, we are filled up with ourselves. We're filled up with, with our professions. We're filled up with many good things, our families or our, our, our security. Those things we want to flush out with the fullness of God. If you're filled with God, then you have all you need. But we're, we need to pray for that. Can you pray with me that we would be filled with the fullness of God? So you have three petitions that you can pray for yourself, that you can pray for one another. God, help me to live and love like Christ. Let Christ dwell on my hearts through faith that I might be rooted and grounded in love. We can pray, God, let me know. Give me the strength to comprehend how much your son loves me. You'll need help understanding that. And so the community of faith is there. Fill me with the fullness of God. That's what we're called to pray for. You know what you're full of. You're full of so many things. I wanted to move along quickly from there. <laughs> I've realized that as I'm off text at this point, surfing. Uh, so notice what Paul does. After he prays, we, we, we are full, and, and we need to be filled with the fullness of God. Now look at what Paul does. He approaches God, and, and then he asks God for things. Now, what I've just asked for, and what I'm what I'm encouraging you to ask for is that you would live in love like Christ. Okay, think about the way you live in love right now, that it would mirror Christ, uh, that you would know the love of Christ experientially, that you would be able to taste it, right? It's the honey you know, the honey you taste, big difference. And that you would also um, be filled with the fullness of God, that God would be pushing out you and filling you with himself. Those are tall orders, but look what Paul does. He moves right to adoration. Before the prayer is finished, he's already worshiping God. Look in 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Paul's moving right to worship, saying, saying this, You can't out-ask God. You can't out-imagine God. That God is far more generous than you are needy. God has a far greater capacity to give you what you need in these areas than you even have to ask. You can't even ask for what God can already do in you. There's a confidence. There's a worshipful sense that our prayers need to have. That as we approach God, we keep in mind that we are a new humanity. He is our Father. We petition Him for these things, and then we begin to thank Him. 
for the absolute ability that God has to work his power within us to change us from glory to glory. That's where the hope is. The hope isn't in you. It's not in the Bible reading you're doing. It's not in the dedication that you feel you have to a certain ministry. The hope is in him. He alone is able to do it. And so you must believe and rest in that truth. Is he able? There's a book written back in the early 20th century by J.B. Phillips, a Bible translator, and he says, the title of the book is Your God is Too Small. And I think for us, that's often the case. Our God's just too small. We don't think he's able. We don't think he's up for it. We just don't think that his ability is adequate for our need. And please don't fall into that kind of reverse pride. He is more than able. He says to do abundantly beyond. Maybe you can ask, maybe you can ask something. Maybe you can even imagine something greater that you can put into words. He can beat, that. He can beat them both. And then look what he does in the end of this prayer. So he worships, and he turns, back, he turns everything back to God. He says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So he ends in this note of doxology or worship, and he's simply saying this. He's saying, God, the goal of my prayer is for the glory of God. The goal of my prayer, the goal of this church is for the glory of God. That we're praying for, for strength, to live like Christ, we're, we're praying for strength to know the love of Christ, and we're praying to be filled with the fullness of God so that we might display God to the world. That's the charge of the church, to love God's glory. It's the mission of this church as well, that we would begin to live like God. This is the point, by the way, of his fullness. You know, when it says that we're filled with the fullness of God, he's really fulfilling an Old Testament promise that God would dwell with his people again. And now he's he's dwelling with them through his fullness in us so that we might now display the glory of God through the way we live. In fact, this is how the world knows we're the people of God, is that we live like God. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words. He says, we can preach the truth, we can defend it, we can indulge in our apologetics, we can try to present a great front to the world, but you know, it does not impress the world. The need is for something so overwhelming, so divine, so unusual that it will prove that we are indeed the people of God. This, this unique love that we have, this unique enjoyment of God, this living like God, these are the things that will convince the world we're the people of God as we live for his glory. Now, folks, you are capable of great doxology. You are capable of great worship. We see it at sporting events. We see it at musical performance. We see it at creational wonders. We have the capacity. We have an intense devotion to rock stars and and sports and, and, and all kinds of figures. We have the capacity. But it's for the glory of God. All these, all these people that we, we uphold and follow and consider so greatly. How many are remembered in 5, 10, maybe 50 years? Maybe a few, a hundred. Smaller, two hundred. Very few, three, four, five hundred. And yet God will be getting glory throughout all the generations, forever and ever, because he is so glorious and so worthy. So this is what we pray for as a church that if we want to be a church that is going to grow like a gazelle, it's going to come about through prayer and the prayers that we utter. We approach God and we think about our new humanity. We think about our fatherhood, about God's fatherhood in our lives. And we pray, let's pray to live like and love like Christ. And let's pray that we would understand in our soul of souls 
that love that Christ has for us. Let us pray to be filled with the fullness of God, and then let's turn it all back to him and just say, to him be glory forever and ever. So let's take a few minutes now. We have it. David's going to close us in a minute. But let's pray, and we can pray even with the petitions of this prayer. So you can pray loudly. I would ask you to pray briefly um, so that others may pray. And... Um, and I'll begin, and then, and then David will close us. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us by calling us children. How you have lavished on us such a great gift that we might be called children of God, and that's what we are. Father, would you grant to us grace to understand your fatherhood in a deeper, more profound, more experiential way among the believers here. I pray in the name of Jesus.